So I want to talk this morning about seeing God's love. But I want to do it through a little bit different lens. It's a, it's a little bit of an older lens, you might say. A lens that looks at this from a little different angle than one might initially think. Uh, have, have you ever had a time where you've wondered, where is God? When will God show up? Um, perhaps it's a time of fear or uncertainty or trial or tribulation, and you've prayed and you've gone before the and you, you want to see something happen, and you, you may not see it, and you begin wondering, where is God? Um, I've had times like that. Or perhaps you look out at the world around us, and you say, oh Lord, when will you bring all this to an end? With the evil and the things we see outside us, Lord, when are you going to bring this whole equation to a close? Sometimes it seems as though God is no longer active or no longer involved. Uh, where there's no longer a days of the waters parting or the dead rising or the pillar of fire guiding us. They're, they're not like those days. And we live in a time wherein the canon of Scripture has been closed and completed. And we're waiting, as we sung about, we're waiting for the day of the Lord. And as Kevin's been leading us through Second Peter, we got to that closing chapter and we saw it there again. It's a very much so focused on looking to the end. Second Peter 3.11 says, Since all these things, that's the, the earth around us, are to be destroyed in this way, i.e. the fire that will happen and the burning and melting with intense heat, what sort of people ought you to be in holy conduct and godliness? We should be people of holy conduct and godliness. The idea of walking like God, conformed to his image. But there's a warning from the pages of history. A warning of a trap. A trap that can be pretty easy to sort of slide into or get entangled into. And one that involves failing to see God's incredible love. So today I want us to go look at a, it's really sort of a cautionary story. There's a lens from history of a people who had effectively lost their way. And they had lost their fellowship with their God. But their day had some similarities to our own. God's hand had seemingly been absent for quite some time. Their nation was no longer at its pinnacle, that's for sure. It was no longer living in what they would call their finest hour. And they fell into a season of spiritual and moral failure. And this is the story we find when we open our Bibles and turn to the very, very, very conclusion or end of the Old Testament canon. As Israel and the world around were about to enter into what theologians call the intertestamental period. This was the time of Malachi, the last prophet of the Old Testament. And to understand Malachi, we need to get a sense a little bit of the time frame and the situation for the book. The date is, it's widely accepted that Malachi was indeed the last prophecy pinned in the Old Testament. I'm not going to go through all the evidences for that, we don't have time, but we're fairly confident that we've placed it correctly in our Bibles. And it appears from the text that the prophecy occurred after the rebuilding of the temple by Zerubbabel, after the rebuilding of the wall by Nehemiah, and Jerusalem was under a foreign governor, likely Persian of origin. This timeline gives you a sense of what this post-exilic period would have been like as they approached this uh, intertestamental period that, that came afterwards. You had a first wave of returnees under Zerubbabel back of 538, 49,000, and they start the temple rebuild process. Esther shows up on the scene, not in Israel, but back in Persia, sort of out here in the middle, 482. You then have the latter part of the book of Ezra, where Ezra actually then leads a remnant to return another 5,000 in 458 B.C., 
And then by the time we get over to 444 and 445, you have a decree issued to go back and rebuild the wall. So we have Nehemiah coming with another 42,000. And it's at the end of this period that most scholars place Malachi in this region right before we reach this 400 years of silence. And so the, the, the situation, I like the way one commentator put it, Malachi and his contemporaries were living in an uneventful waiting period when God seemed to have forgotten his people that were enduring poverty and foreign domination in the little province of Judah. True, the temple had been completed, but nothing momentous had occurred to indicate that God's presence had returned to fill it with glory, as Ezekiel had indicated would happen in Ezekiel 43. Generations were dying without receiving the promises, kind of like Hebrews 11.13 references, and many were losing their faith, said this commentary. And now here they are, heading into a time period with little to no prophets coming. 400-year period where God wasn't going to send any more messengers. No messengers coming every year. So what was God's closing message to, to these people there in the Old Testament? How would he prepare his people for these 400 years of relative silence that lay ahead? Much like we live in a day where we're waiting. And it's been quite a while since the Lord walked this earth. Let's drop down to around this 420 B.C., give or take time frame, to see what the Lord said to his people living in this time of waiting. Uh, and we're not going to have time here today to do an exhaustive study. It's a, you know, a four-chapter book with quite a bit, so don't get worried. We're not going to be here for hours. But what we are going to do is sort of a, a high-level flyby. And I'm, I'm going to start out at about 30,000 feet. So we're going to be in our 767 Dreamliner, and we're going to be looking down at Malachi from fairly high up, and I'm going to get, just cruise through some verses so you can see this, because you've got to see this big picture before we sort of dive in. And I want to, as I read these, I want you to ask the question and think about what is the common theme that I'm, that I'm hearing coming up as in this closing book of Malachi? One, two. I have loved you, says the Lord, but you say, how have you loved us? One six, O priests who despise my name, but you say, how have we despised your name? One seven, you are presenting defiled food upon my altar, but you say, how have we defiled you? Two thirteen, he no longer regards the offerings or accepts it with favor from your hand, yet you say, for what reason does he not accept it? 2.17, you have wearied the Lord with your words, yet you say, how have we wearied him? 3.7, return to me and I will return to you, says the Lord of hosts. But you say, how shall we return? 3.8, you are robbing me. You're defrauding me, says the Lord. But you say, how have we robbed you? 3.13, your words have been arrogant against me, says the Lord. Yet you say, what have we spoken against you? Do you hear sort of a common theme here? It's a little like talking to a teenager. I, don't know. <laughs> I say that, I've got one of my teenagers sitting here, and he'll probably say, what are you talking about, Dad? And I'll say, case in point. That's all. <laughs> they... They typically, a lot of times, they get, you get to an age where you think you sort of, you have it figured out, and so when your mom or dad say, you, you have the right to sort of question back, right? And that's, that's pretty normal. Um, and you know, if, you know, when you talk to someone and they continually question you and your statements at every turn, you should say, what does this indicate? What is this conversation like? If you, have you ever actually, uh, maybe, this, maybe it's only in our house, but I'll tell you, this is a little bit how it is in our house sometimes. I'll be talking, making a statement, maybe telling someone to do something or asking for something, and I get met with sort of this sort of response. And I'll, I'll be saying things, and then they, they start with the question. They start with the argument. I say, okay, Dad, 
I just stop them. I'll just speak. Have you ever seen just, okay, mom, okay, dad. You just stop them while they're giving the argument and say, the response I'm looking for is a simple okay. You don't, you don't need to go down the road of arguing this out and disputing, right? Okay, dad. And that's actually, you know, one of the big picture lessons. Can you simply listen to your dad and respond accordingly? That's one of the huge pictures of Malachi. God's people should have a heart that responds to his words with a simple amen. So be it. Okay, dad. We get the picture. We hear you. But as you read and as you saw, that isn't quite what they did. So that's sort of the 30,000 foot view. Let's sort of lower our altitude a little. Let's come down to about 10,000 feet. That's about as low as we're going to get. We're not going to land down in the weeds here today. We're going to hold it, hover about 10,000 feet, and look at some of these statements, a few that I just went over, to glean some of the lessons that I think are profound in this oracle of the word of, of the Lord to Malachi. So, 1 1, the oracle of the word of the Lord to Israel through Malachi. I have loved you, says the Lord. But you say, how have you loved us? Let's pause in that verse, mid-verse. Before we look at the Lord's response to this question, I want us to consider a few of our own questions with this opening section. Number one, why does the Lord lead with this statement? That's a question I think is worth asking and worth answering. Two, what does Israel's response to, to God's statement indicate about Israel and those people? Three, we'll go to this one. I, I sort of like this one. If you were the Lord God Yahweh and you knew the whole history of what you had done for Israel and your work with them, how would you have answered their question when they say, how have you loved us? How would you have responded? We'll get to that one in a second. Let's go back to question number one. Why lead with a simple statement, I have loved you? Notice the tense here is looking back, past tense. The Lord wants Israel to understand and to see that he has demonstrated his steadfast love toward them. Now, I believe there's a reason why he led with this statement, and it's going to form the foundation for the rest of this prophecy. I believe that his love for Israel and for his people is the foundational element for all that's going to follow in this prophecy. In fact, I might be so bold as to stay that God's love for his people is the foundation for everything. It's the foundation for Christ and his mission to come to the earth. John 3.16, famous verse, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have everlasting life. We know this verse. God loved the world and he acted and, and sent his Son. It's the foundation for our love. Our ability to love one another and to love God. Where does it begin? We love because he first loved us. It's also a key indicator that we know him. 1 John 4, 7, Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God. There's the origin of it. And everyone who loves is born of God and knows God. The one who does not love does not know God, for God is love. So uh, the statement that God has loved Israel is foundational to those people back in Malachi's day, and it's very much so foundational for us right here in 2023. So God's statement affirming this, he wants them to understand this foundation. The question is, do we recognize his love or not? Or do we question it? Have you ever sat, does God really love me? Especially you're going through tough times. How is God, where is God in this? Does he really love me through this trial when I didn't get the job, when the thing went south, when some sickness hits, when there's someone that passes away in a family? Does God really love us? You see, it's easy to get into that. They had started down that road. Number two, the second question, what does Israel's response indicate? How have you loved us? 
it appears that they are questioning God's love. They are questioning whether God has really demonstrated love for them or not, or if he even has really loves them at all. This is a huge issue. If you can't recognize and see God's love, it would, it, I, I would make the case that this is their biggest issue. I'm, I'm, in just a second, I'm going to take you down. We're going to look at all kinds of other issues that Malachi hits on, but the reality is it all began here. When you don't see God's love for you, you're not going to be motivated to serve him. I believe this issue and the things that are going to follow trace their origin back to their lack of ability to see and acknowledge God's love. Can one go to church, serve in various capacities, sing songs to God, and yet deep down question whether God really loves them or not? Well, basically, this is what Malachi is telling us Israel did. They did this very thing. Levites going to the temple, doing the sacrifices, going through the motions, but they don't even recognize God's love. How have you loved us? But I want to pause for a second to make you think about something. The moment that you begin to doubt God's love for you, where does that lead you? Where does that lead us? If we continue down a path questioning and doubting his love for, for us, where will our motivation come from to try to walk out and live the Christian life? Maybe you have another question. What is your motivation and foundation for walking the Christian life? If he doesn't really love you, why are we here? Do you see how this, it's like a domino effect, just leads you down this path. If you worked for a truly loving boss that cared for you, that knew about your family, and they, they took time to make sure you had the time off that you need, that they didn't overwork you, that you, you had what you needed, you're getting paid the right amount to support your family, and they cared for you, how are you going to work for that loving boss? Hopefully pretty well. And when that loving boss goes on vacation, and they're out of the office, how are you going to work then? probably be motivated to keep working pretty hard because you know when he returns, you want to have a pretty good rapport. You don't want to have to look like, ah, I just slacked off against my loving and kind boss. Now, you want to hear the words, well, well done, my good and faithful slave. Now, if you worked for a very vengeful, hateful boss that would, didn't treat you well, what's the likelihood that you'll be motivated to work hard? You see, Seeing the love of the Lord towards us is foundational to our motivation. You know, this week is a pretty big week for us in the Butler house. We have my second oldest son. We're going to be moving him off to the University of Wyoming. And one of our sons went to MSU, which is just 15 minutes away. This other one, Andrew, chose to go three states away, which makes it a little bit of a, a tougher deal. But he's going to be going out there. He's 18 years ago, he was born, and throughout the years, we have provided and cared for him. We've taught him about the Lord and his word. We've taught him about the Lord's redemptive plan through Christ. We have shown our love toward him, just as we have all of our children. But there comes a time when he has to sort of step out and take that step out and, and walk with the Lord on, the, on his own. And sometimes you start wondering, how will he do? Will he... Will they stay on course? Will they walk with the Lord? Will they remember what they've learned? How, what will their view be of, of, of us as parents through all these years? Will they look back with fond memories? Will they look back and, and see the love that we poured out? You know, if he looked at me when I drop him off this week in Wyoming, and say, hey, I love you, Andrew. If he looked at me and said, how have you loved me? I'd be like, are you kidding me? <laughs> I mean, are you kidding me? I mean, I don't, you know, I'm surprised the Lord just didn't strike him dead right there. I, mean, I wouldn't do that to Andrew, but nonetheless. But the point is like, you know, that's only 18 years of someone's life. We're dealing with 1,300 years here. He's going to go all the way back to Jacob here. 1,300 years I've got of a track record. And you're going to ask me how I have loved you? And that brings us to the third question. 
How would you respond to that question? I just told you how I would respond. Now, I actually have thought this through a little. And several weeks ago, we were reading this and been going through Malachi. And I said to the kids one night, I read it and I stopped it. I didn't let them see God's response, which I was hoping to do here. But we, have, we read it anyway. But nonetheless, I, I read it and I stopped. I said, how would you respond if you were the creator God and you had walked with these people for 1,300 years? What would you say? Well, they had, they had great ideas, great responses. Oh, one said, I'd probably remind them of what, what I did for them back in Egypt. I'd remind them of the parting of the Red Sea and how I took care of Pharaoh and delivered them from the bondage that they were in. Perhaps I would remind them of my hand of help, you know, during the days when I led them into the promised land and the walls fell down and the sun stood still and all those awesome things. Maybe I'd tell them about my hand of help in the times of the judges and Gideon and all these cool stories. And I'd tell them how I raised up my king and I chose my king David and I gave you a great king and I expanded your borders and I conquered your enemies. And I'd say, look at all that. And don't you see I love you? But that isn't the answer that the Lord gave to their question. All of that would make perfect sense and very much so worth reminding them about But God didn't go there. He chose to go back to something that is foundational for all of those different examples of his help and his guidance and his deliverance. He chose to go back to his choice to bless a specific lineage, their lineage. And he demonstrated this by highlighting a line that he did not choose to love and bless, and that was Esau's. Malachi 1, 2, I'm going to read it again. I have loved you, says the Lord, but you say, how have you loved us? Here's God's response. Was not Esau Jacob's brother, declares the Lord? Yet I have loved Jacob, but I have hated Esau. And I have made his mountain a desolation and appointed his inheritance for the jackals of the wilderness. Now I know that this passage has led many theologians into often all kinds of different places. And I do not want to go there today. I want us to see just the basic reality. Because as you get into those theological debates, you may very well miss the plain and simple reality that he's wanting to put right before his people. Why did God choose to go back to his choice to love and bless Jacob and not Esau? He could have mentioned all those other times of great deliverance. But what was the ultimate motivation behind those times of great deliverance, those times of his interaction? Why was God motivated to part the waters, to lead them out of Egypt, to lead them into the promised land, to help them? What was God's motivation? Why was God acting on behalf of Israel? You see, there was something more foundational than just any one single event wherein he happened to come and help them. And that was his volitional choice to love and to bless them, which started some 1,300 years earlier back with Jacob. Jacob, the one whose name was changed to Israel. The one in whom they derived their lineage and their name. Their family line. And it was God's choice to love and to bless them. And that was then evidenced in his acting on their behalf for century after century. You see, here's the reality. God has the right to choose. Did he have to send Jesus? No. He chose to send Jesus. Did God have to extend his grace to the world around us? Does God have to give them time? Does he have to give us rain? Does he have to give us provision to all the world around us? No. He's chosen to do that. Did God have to bless Abraham? Did God have to bless Isaac and say, in Isaac your descendants shall be named? Did God have to bless Jacob? And not Esau. Could have made it a lot easier. Just don't, God, couldn't you just made it so there weren't the twins? No, that's part of the picture here. I chose this one. 
I volitionally chose this one. Did God have to save you and me? No, he chooses to provide a way of redemption and salvation. The reality is this. Volitional choice is a foundational element, if not the foundational element, for love to even exist. And I believe it's also why he's given you and I volitional choice to choose as well. He did not make us robots. He calls us to love him. If we were robots, we're just love, 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 love. I mean, it'd be like, you know, that's not real love. But if I have the choice to love him, then that's real love. Love cannot truly exist when one is a non-volitional robot doing what they are programmed to do. God is not a volitional robot, and neither are we. Love is choosing to act for the benefit of another. I choose to love my children, therefore how I interact, the things I do for them, the things I give them, the actions I take towards them, are a result of my choice to love them. Jesus said, greater love has no one than this, than one lay down his life for his friends. This is a choice by the one exhibiting love, choosing to lay down his life for his friends. And God chose to do that for you and for me. And in the case of corporate Israel, he chose to love and bless Jacob and his descendants and not Esau. So God did love Israel. And he says, this can be seen best. I'm going to answer your question. You want to know how I love it? I'm going to answer that best by showing that I volitionally chose to bless your family. But they had arrived at a point where they couldn't see it. They didn't believe it anymore. They didn't think he really loved them. Or at least they couldn't recognize it. And without the ability to recognize his love, their worship activities, their lives became less and less meaningful before the Lord. And ultimately, many of them wound up just sort of going through the motions, spiritually unpowered and unfruitful. They, they surely did have a form of godliness. Levites there, the temple, the altar, but they had denied its power. And what does that look like? Well, Malachi gives us some details, and I'm going to rapidly go through them. It's to see, okay, it started out, they no longer recognized God's love for them. They were no longer motivated to love him in return. How did that walk out in their lives? Issue number one, they and their spiritual teachers no longer honored the Lord. Malachi 1.6, a son honors his father and a servant honors his master. Then if I am a father, where is my honor? And if I am a master, where is my respect, says the Lord of hosts, the Lord of armies, to you, O priests, who despise my name? But you say, how have we despised your name? Well, when you present the blind for sacrifice, is that not evil? And when you present the lame and the sick, is that not evil? Why not go offer that to your governor? Would he be pleased with you? Or would he receive you kindly? says the Lord of armies. This is addressed to the priests. The Levites were assigned the duties of the sanctuary, the house of God. They were scattered amongst all the tribes of Israel. If you remember back even before this era, they were scattered in order to keep the tribes, you know, focused and keep the knowledge and service of Yahweh, their God, in the forefronts of their mind. Yet in Malachi, we find that these priests and the, and the spiritual leaders of that day had no respect or honor for the Lord as they are bringing him blind and lame sacrifices, sort of third-tier blemished sacrifices to the Lord. You know, when you don't see his love for you, you're going to struggle to honor him and love him and the bad want to give back to him. If you don't love him, you don't see his love for you, you're not going to love, you're going to go, oh, get that blind one. That's the one we'll give to him. Give, we don't, that, that, that other one, save it for all. We need that one. Let's, let's just give him the blind one, the blemish one. Issue number two, they grew tired and weary of serving him. 
1.13, you also say, my, how tiresome it is. And you disdainfully sniff at it, says the Lord of hosts. And you bring what was taken by robbery and what is lame or sick. So you bring the offering. Should I receive that from your hand, says the Lord? But cursed be the swindler who has a male in his flock and vows it like he's going to sacrifice it. But then he sacrifices a blemished animal to the Lord. Because I am a great king, says the Lord of hosts, and my name should be feared among the nations. They had grown tired of serving the Lord. They would sigh. Oh, are you serious? I got to go back there again. I got to go back to church again. I got to go back to the temple service again. Do I really need to do this again? We live in a culture that will happily sit and watch three-plus-hour-long movies. And the average screen time in the United States on our phone, our mobile phones is three hours and 15 minutes per day. But then we'll look out and we'll see many people roll their eyes at going to listen to a sermon or someone trying to teach the Word of God for 30 or 40 minutes. <sighs> This guy get over? I'm so tired of listening to this guy. Hopefully that's not true right now. But nonetheless, nonetheless yeah, I know it's getting a little heavy. We'll, we'll turn it a corner here in a second. Anyway, they grew tired and weary of serving him because they no longer recognized his love. Number three, they no longer honored their covenants and their promises made to God. And you can see this in how they handled marriage. 2.13, God says this. This is another thing you do. You cover the altar of the Lord with tears and with weeping and with groaning because he no longer regards the offering or accepts it with favor from your hand. Yet you say, for what reason? Well, because the Lord has been a witness between you and the wife of your youth against whom you have dealt treacherously, though she is your companion and your wife by covenant. The view here is they truly were going through the motions with their worship and their sacrifice activities. Going to the altar, that's, that was the real altar, not a fake one, not one to Baal or something else. This is, a, this is the altar of Yah. Going and crying out, trying to offer these things before the Lord, and, but God's not responding. They ask, what reason? Why is he not responding? We're worshiping him. We're going through the Levitical motions, but he's not accepting us. Why? Because they had not been honoring their covenants of marriage. They didn't value and prioritize their covenants with God. If you don't love God and you don't recognize that he loves you, then who cares about the covenant you made to him? I don't really care about whether he's going to uphold me on this deal. I mean, I don't really. But if you love him and you made a promise to him and he dearly loves you, Imagine a father and a son. He's made a commitment to you. You've made a promise. You hope that you're going to be a person of your word, right? But when you've walked away, you say, I don't even think he loves us anyway. I don't really have any desire to love, you know, strong motivation to love him. Or the marriage and the covenant start suffering. Issue number five, they, or four, wherever we are here, they no longer recognized right from wrong. Malachi 2.17 says, you have wearied the Lord with your words. Yet you say, how have we wearied him? In that you say, everyone who does evil is good in the sight of Yahweh, and he delights in them. Or you've also said, where is the God of justice? Now as the Israelites lived in that time of waiting and not seeing the day of the Lord God's wrath come without seeing God's decisive action against evil, simply going through the motions of religion without truly wanting to know him or drawing near to him or loving him in return. They came to some really bad conclusions. And this one is a particularly bad conclusion. You got to see this. They're here saying, oh, it, it's okay if you've done evil. God doesn't care about that. He still delights in you. God isn't really acting in justice or wrath at this time. Just 
take it easy. You're all good. Just look outside your doors. We're all good. You, you know, God's not mad at you. Now, this type of talk and putting words into God's mouth, God says, this wearies me. By the way, this is the same God in Isaiah 40 that says, I do not grow weary and I do not grow tired as a human does. And here he decides to take that same Hebrew word and says, boom, I'm very wearied by something. Why? Because the hearts of these people have taken and twisted God's word and, and viewed and taught others around them as if good and evil, right and wrong, God doesn't care about it. God's not a God of justice. And it wearies the Lord. He says, that wearies me when you act like I don't care about right and I don't care about wrong and I'm not going to make justice in, in the end and judgment. That wearies me. Another issue. They didn't know how to draw near to him. 3.7, from the days of your fathers, you have turned aside from my statutes and have not kept them. Return to me, the Lord says, and I will return to you, says the Lord of hosts. But you say, how shall we return? While losing sight here of God's love for them, their hearts towards him were struggling to return to him, even though back on our timeline, Zechariah, he's making reference to it, I believe, Zechariah had these exact same words. He said it over and over to them. Return to me and I'll return to you. Return to me and I will return to you. This was his cry to these people. And yet they had somehow arrived at a point of, as they've slid into this hole that they don't even know how to return. They don't even know how to find their way back home. Or do they want to get back home? And then this final one I'm going to point out. They ultimately arrived at a place wherein they sought no gain in godliness. Now this is their end. This is where this thread will eventually lead you. They said this in 3.13. The Lord said this first. Your words have been arrogant against me, says the Lord. Yet you say, what have we spoken against you? Well, you have said this. You've said, it is vain to serve God. And what profit is it that we have kept his charge and that we have walked in mourning before the Lord of hosts? So now we call the arrogant blessed. Not only are the doers of wickedness built up, but they also test God and escape. End quote. That's what they had stated. And he, the masterful judge, draws that and says, here's what you've stated. This is arrogant against me. This was the conclusion of their findings, that there is no gain to keep the charge of the Lord. I don't know if you can get a whole lot lower than this, if you were to say, it's of no value to walk in reverence and fear and belief in the Lord. But this is where they ended up. I contend it all started back when they failed to recognize that God truly did love them. And they've wandered into this. And now they see no evidence of his hand. They think there's no gain in trying to walk a godly life. They had attempted to live out godliness and they had found it to be of no value. You may ask the question, why? I believe they didn't do it with hearts motivated by devotion and love for their God who, who truly did dearly love them. They did it out of rote religion, going through the motions, holding to a form of godliness, but devoid of its power. Can folks come to church today, have a form of godliness, a little like Israel did, yet deny its power? Not truly recognizing his love for them and thereby slipping into religious activity that's devoid of his work and power. Maybe some of this, if you know your New Testament, maybe some of this is ringing a little bell. You might be remembering what Paul said to Timothy in 2 Timothy 3.1, but realize this, that in the last days, difficult times will come. 
where men will be lovers of self, lovers of money, boastful, arrogant, revilers, disobedient to parents, ungrateful, unholy, unloving, irreconcilable, malicious gossips, without self-control, brutal, haters of good, treacherous, reckless, conceited. Do Do you sort of get the picture here? Now pay attention to these last two. Lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, holding to a form of godliness, although they have denied its power. Avoid such men as these, Paul tells young Timothy. I believe we see more and more of this with each year. I believe we're actually getting near to these days where he says, these are latter days. It's been a little like it was in Malachi's day. Relatively quiet. No fire from heaven. No earth opening up to swallow the bad guys. No sun standing still. No red seas parting. And thus people quietly slip further down this this same slippery slope that Israel did. But I've noticed something throughout the years of studying prophets like Malachi. And I hope that you have too when you read in these words. If you dig deep into God's prophets like this, you will always find a ray. A ray of hope. Right when you're sitting and saying, wow, this is just... I can't even take this. This is heavy stuff. There's a ray. There's a ray of hope. And you're like, oh man, that's like, it's like a fresh air that blows through the room. You ask, what should a person do living in a time of waiting, a time where others are going through the motions of religion but not really empowered by a love for the Lord and His goodness? Well, look at this last closing 10,000 foot view of, at Malachi. Malachi 3.16 Then those who feared the Lord spoke to one another and the Lord gave attention and he heard it and a book of remembrance was written before the Lord for those who fear the Lord and who esteem his name. They will be mine, says the Lord of hosts, on the day that I prepare my own possession and I will spare them as a man spares his own son who serves him so you will again distinguish between the righteous and the wicked, between one who serves God and one who does not serve him. You see the picture here? There was a remnant in that day that heard. The the prophecy sort of stops, and you get a little narrative right here. You get to hear about, there was a group that heard Malachi's message. They did hear God's word, and notice some attributes of this group and what they did. Number one, this was a group that feared the Lord. This was their foundation, a genuine reverence and fear for the Lord their God. Did you catch that? That's the first thing that's mentioned about the group. Two, this group spoke to one another. They got together. They got together. They opened the words of Malachi. They read it. They sharpened iron with one another. They fellowshiped together to discuss God's word and what it meant for them. Number three, they gave attention and listened intently to what the Lord God was telling them. Notice with this group, there's no questions here. There's no no questions back to their maker or to Malachi. They simply take it and say, yeah, we're getting the message. We need to do something. We need to respond. And thus the Lord gives them as a result of that. A fourth thing I want you to see. He gives those kinds of people an incredible hope. He said, those are the people that are my people. That are living in this midst of the people doing all these other things that have, that have robbed me, have turned away from me. But these people have responded. And when the Bible stops to tell us that a book of remembrance was written before the Lord... I hope your ears sort of perk up. You're telling me that the actions of people here on the earth resulted in God Almighty in the heavenly saying, someone grab a pen and paper and start writing down in, my, in a book for me what these people did and write their names down because I want to make sure that they know, that I know, that I will never forget them and that I know they responded. 
It may be symbolic. I get that, this whole book view. But either way, that God wants you to see. He's taking time to remember those that esteemed him, that loved him. And he wants you and I to know that he'll remember those who love him, who fear him, who revere him, who are motivated to serve and lay down our whole life for him, even today. The reality is, when we love something, we are motivated to listen, like these people at the end did, to learn from it, and to even act by it. You know, I had the the privilege of visiting the United States Air Force National Museum this past uh, Monday. It's over in Dayton, Ohio. I've gone to a lot of cool museums on aircraft. I happen to really love airplanes. When I was a kid, I had models all over my walls, planes, pictures. I had the A-10 Warthog. Some of you might call it the A-10 Thunderbolt. I had models of the F-15, the F-16, the B-1B, the you know, you name it. I built one of the F-117. I mean, I loved planes. So I love going around and looking at these museums, all the Smithsonian's I've been to. Udvar Hazy out at Dulles International Airport where they got a credible display there. But my brother went to this one in Dayton. He said, Joel, you've got to go to the, the museum in Dayton. So we were driving back from a lengthy trip to, uh, to New York, upstate New York. Second day of traveling. By the way, we put about 45 hours of net driving time uh, in the car. But we were driving back. And I said, I've got to stop at this museum. The kids are, why are we stopping? Let's get home. After all that, we got to go to this museum, man. I, I got to see it. So we pull off I-7. We go south. We go by Wright-Patterson Air Force Base. We pull in the parking lot. Place is huge, first off. There's like five monstrous hangars, a vertical section with a, min, a couple Minuteman missiles in there. They got the V-2 rocket that Germany designed during World War II. It's incredible. If you love avionics or aviation or, you know, aerospace history, this is the place for you. And I'm sitting here going in. I remember walking in. They've got these little booths, and they got people stationed there. And I walk up, and I'm just like, smile on my face, just walking in the door. I'm like, this is incredible. And I walk up, and the guy, I go up to the guy. He got a little topo map of the place. I'm looking at all the top-down views of all these hangars, and they just have silhouettes of all these planes. And I'm sitting there going, and I'm looking down at the cylinder, and I'm like, oh, wow, that's an F-170. There's an F-22. There's a YF-23. You know, there's an X-29. There's a B-17. There's, there's a B-29. There, you know, I'm going, oh, this is incredible. And the guy gets a big smile. He goes, I can tell you're going to love this place. He goes, we have it all right here. And, I, and so I'm, on, I'm like on cloud. I'm and the kids are, the whole family is just behind me as we're walking into this place. And I'm, I'm moving quick because I did know we had, to, we had to move a little fast. But you get in there. We made our way back to the research area and the research and development wing. And I'm standing up on the space shuttle area. And I'm looking down at Apollo 11 capsule. And I'm looking over at Air Force One. And I look down and I see the YF-23, the beloved Boeing YF-23 that competed against the Lockheed F-22. And I'm sitting here. I'm looking at the Grumman X-29, you know, the first forward swept aircraft that had ever, ever been attempted. And then I look over and I see the X-15. And I'm like, are you kidding me? This is like, we're talking Chuck Yeager and Neil Armstrong. And I'm like, this is incredible. These are the real aircraft. And I'm telling, I'm speaking like that to the kids. And, and then I, you know, we have to go down these steps. And I see this old man sitting over in a chair. And he's wearing sort of the garb of, of the tour. He worked there. And he said, did I just hear the voice of a future Air Force Museum tour guide? <laughs> <laughs> And I said, man, I would love to work here, man. I, because he, he was right. He saw that this guy would be motivated to work here and work hard here because he loves this stuff. He loves airplanes and he knows the history and he would love to pour into it. And, I, and he went on to tell me, he said, there's other people like you. There's a guy, I go, I, but I live a long, I said, I live a long way away. And he goes, oh, I get that. He goes, we got a guy that drives every, every weekend from St. Louis. That's across another state and a half to get over there. And I was like, well, I don't know. Springfield's a little far for me, but nonetheless. <laughs> anyway, I was like, I do love it here. But see, when you love something, you're going to be motivated by that. Jesus said, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? Peter said, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, then act, tend my lambs. 
Remember verse, the next verse, he says to him, do you love me? And, yeah, you know I love you. He said, shepherd my sheep. He said to him a third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Now Peter, by this time, he's grieved because of the Lord. Lord you, you, know, you know that I love you. You know all things. You know that I love you. Jesus said, tend my sheep. If you really love him, you'll be motivated. When you fail to see that he loves you, you're unlikely to have a strong love in return. So how do you recognize God's love for you in our day? If Israel failed to see it in Malachi's day, I assume that we should be careful too. We must be watchful and diligent to understand and recognize his incredible hand of love for us and thus be motivated by that. I have a little assignment I'm going to ask you to think through and do this in your own free time. See, how do I see, ask yourself the question, how do I see God's love in my life in the, and in the history pages of my life? Look back on your life. Say, where do I see God's hand of love? I think if you do that exercise and you ask the Lord, help me recall to mind the things that you've done, he'll show you. He will show you. Little thing here little thing there. Kept you from going off the cliff there. Pulled you up out of the mire over there. Brought you over here. Brought you to these people. Gave you a gift right there. Blessed you immensely right here. He loves you. When you think about it and you stop thinking about our very existence, the fact that we're sitting here together, we're breathing and we can move and be be sharpened by one another and praise his name. That's his own love that even allows us to be here. When we stop to do this activity, I've found his hand and his love can be seen in so many facets that it almost becomes impossible to miss. It's been nearly 2,000 years since the Lord came and walked this earth. Nearly 2,000 years since he departed and said he was coming again. The church was started back in Acts, and it's gone through centuries of ups and downs. And we find ourselves today living in a culture that no longer recognizes right from wrong. And as for the church, we see some folks go to church. They have a form of godliness, but do they really know him? Do they really walk that out? My prayer is that my own family and this church family here at CCC would be like that group in Malachi, that group that truly loved and revered and honored the Lord. We should be a people that walk in the fear and reverence of our awesome God. We should be like that one remnant that gave attention to the Lord, that heard the message and didn't question. A people that does distinguish between right from wrong. A people with a future hope and a confident expectation like we sang about soon and very soon, he will return. And a people who take time to recognize and see how much he has done for us and see his incredible love and thus are motivated to love him from the heart with everything we have as we rend our lives before him and say, here, here am I, send me.